This talk is about beyond cost-benefit analysis, um, or more specifically about uh, cost-benefit analysis CBA versus uh, SWF, social welfare functions. So cost-benefit analysis, uh, uh, probably familiar to a lot of people in the room, uh, is a dominant uh, policy analysis tool. Um, uh, it's uh, used widely uh, uh, by various governments. Uh, so in the US, for example, uh, uh, um, since uh, uh, 1980, uh, um, uh, government agencies, regulatory agencies have been required by presidential order to use uh, cost-benefit analysis for all major uh, regulations, uh, and that's been uh, kept in place by every president. Uh, it's been kept in place by President Trump, uh, distorted in some ways, not surprisingly, but still uh, kept in uh, place. Uh, my understanding is that cost-benefit analysis uh, is an important policy tool uh, in the UK, uh, as well as uh, other governments such as Canada, uh, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, it's widely used uh, in applied economics, right? Uh, uh, there's a whole, whole sub-literatures uh, in applied economics that exist to sort of uh, operationalize uh, cost-benefit analysis, uh, measure uh, um, uh, policy effects, and so forth. All right, so what exactly is cost-benefit analysis? I mean, uh, sometimes the term cost-benefit analysis is used uh, in kind of a generic way to mean simply a qualitative uh, balancing of pros and cons. Uh, but cost-benefit analysis uh, in economics, uh, and as I mean it here, and certainly as it's implemented uh, uh, in the uh, ac uh, uh, academic literature uh, and in uh, uh, governmental practice, at least in the US, uh, is something more precise. Cost-benefit analysis uses money uh, as a scale for measuring a policy's effects on individuals' well-being, right? So money is the uh, central uh, indicator uh, with respect to which effects are commensurated. Uh, 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 more precisely, cost-benefit analysis uses this notion of a monetary equivalent, right, the ME. Um, so a, a monetary equivalent for a given individual uh, is a change to her income that just makes her indifferent between the policy and the status quo, right? So some uh, uh, um, uh, uh, policy uh, is selected for the status quo. That might be, for example, uh, the policy of keeping in place existing uh, um, uh, regulations, uh, that's the baseline. Uh, and then if we're sort of uh, uh, trying to value some alternative policy, and a policy here could be anything, any kind of governmental measure, um, uh, um, uh, we, if we're doing cost-benefit analysis, uh, we uh, uh, quantify the effect of the policy on a given individual uh, in terms of money using this notion of monetary equivalent. Right, so uh, if in the baseline of status quo, individual I has income, income here uh, is noted as C for consumption, right, material expenditure, uh, and other attributes, D, could be anything, could be uh, health, uh, environmental conditions, uh, uh, leisure, and so forth, uh, uh, and there's some change in her attributes between uh, the status quo and the policy, so with the policy she get, goes from having uh, income C and other attributes D to having C star and D star, uh, then cost-benefit analysis quantifies that change in terms of her monetary equivalent, her ME, right? So uh, uh, individual I's monetary equivalent of policy P is the change in her baseline income, right, delta C, such that it justifies it to make her indifferent between the baseline and the policy, right? If we were to uh, increase her income, income uh, by delta C, from C to C plus delta C, uh, she would now be indifferent between the baseline and the policy, right? So if she is better off with the policy, this is positive. If she's worse off with the policy, this is negative. Uh, this can also be interpreted in terms of so-called willingness to pay, willingness to accept amounts, 
right? Uh, this is a, um, uh, uh, a terminology often used in cost-benefit analysis. Uh, uh, if uh, the individual is better off with the baseline, then uh, delta C is the amount that she would be willing to pay to keep in place the baseline. Um, if she is uh, um, uh, worse off uh, with the baseline, then she'd have to be compensated. She would be willing to accept uh, delta C uh, uh, for leaving in place the baseline as opposed to putting in place the policy. So all this terminology, willingness to pay, willingness to accept, monetary equivalence, all of these have this idea, they're always of, of, of referring to this idea of measuring uh, policy effects on individuals uh, 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 by uh, 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 calculating monetary equivalence, right? And now, once having uh, uh, calculated for each individual, uh, or each group of individuals, uh, their monetary equivalence for the policy, CDA is a simple rule, right? The uh, um, uh, number assigned to a policy is simply its sum total of monetary equivalence, right? And the policy with the biggest sum of monetary equivalence is the best policy, right? So if a policy has a positive sum of monetary equivalence, it's ranked better than the status quo, and again, the policy with the largest sum total is seen as the best policy, right? So that's CBA uh, in a uh, nutshell. Um, and a lot of... Um, the economic literature I referred to uh, uh, is concerned with estimating these amounts. Right? So these monetary equivalent amounts can be estimated using behavior. Right? We can look at uh, um, how people uh, behave in response to changing prices right? or changing incentives. Uh, it can also be estimated uh, using surveys. All right, so that's cost-benefit analysis in a, uh, um, you know, uh, 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 a short summary. Uh, uh, um, I, uh, I think cost-benefit analysis is fine, but it's not the end state, right? We can do better, uh, and a lot of my work has been uh, devoted to arguing that. Uh, and the thing I like is the social welfare function, SWF, uh, which is a tool uh, developed by uh, academic economists, right? There's a big academic literature on social welfare functions, uh, both um, theoretical, uh, uh, um, uh, 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 economic, social choice theory, uh, and also various applied literature. So, for example, uh, the notion of social welfare function is very important in the academic literature on climate change. Uh, it's important uh, in the literature on optimal tax theory. Uh, it's not yet used, as far as I'm aware, uh, by uh, uh, governments. Uh, when President Obama was elected, uh, a bunch of us made various proposals as to how we might sort of improve on cost-benefit. Uh, my hobby horse was doing so uh, by using social welfare functions. Uh, he didn't do it. I think he had bigger fish to fry, uh, the Affordable Care Act, and so forth. But in any event, uh, uh, it's not yet been taken up by governments, although I think that's uh, something which might uh, uh, happen. Uh, and uh, my recent scholarship, uh, uh, last number of years, has focused both on the normative foundations of the social welfare function framework and uh, uh, there's still a lot of theory to be done uh, in terms of fleshing this thing out and on developing it as a practical policy tool uh, in areas such as risk regulation, uh, climate change, and health policy. Um, so uh, these acronyms are just various things I've written uh, about social welfare functions. Uh, I wrote sort of a philosophical book, Wellbeing and Fair Distribution, uh, uh, in 2012. Uh, I, um, co-edited the Oxford Handbook of Well-Being Public Policy. Uh, uh, social welfare function is sort of a central theme in that. Uh, I'm writing a more accessible book, Measuring Social Welfare, uh, about uh, these ideas. Uh, I am a um, 
Uh, as I'll talk about in a bit, my preferred social welfare function is a prioritarian uh, social welfare uh, function. So that sort of implements in this framework the idea is pioneered by Derek Parfit. Uh, I am um, a co-leader uh, with Oli Norheim, uh, um, a public health scholar from Bergen, of something we called uh, the Prioritarianism Practice Research Network, right? PIP, this is an attempt to sort of implement uh, uh, prioritarianism and as well as utilitarianism uh, 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 as a practical uh, policy tool. So uh, I really believe this is an improvement on cost-benefit analysis, um, and that's what I'm going to talk about um, uh, here. Uh, so the plan for this talk um, is uh, first to give an overview of the social work function approach, uh, to go through the theory. Um, I'll do that uh, in you know, 20, 25 minutes. Uh, 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 a lot of this stuff is not a familiar, uh, maybe familiar to, to some people here, and familiar to everyone here, that's great. Uh, uh, but uh, 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 I don't believe this is widely familiar, so I'm going to sort of just try to get straight about the core theory. Uh, uh, and then I'm going to compare uh, cost-benefit analysis and social welfare functions uh, as tools for governmental policy analysis uh, using a mini-case study, right? They built a simulation model uh, 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 based on um, uh, uh, U.S. Uh, um, uh, um, uh, 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 mortality risks, uh, and I'm going to use this to illustrate uh, uh, um, uh, the differences uh, between cost-benefit analysis and various social welfare functions. Uh, and then having sort of laid out both the theory of social welfare functions and shown in application how cost-benefit is, is different, not the same thing, um, I'll talk about whether uh, cost-benefit analysis can be defended. Uh, I'll go through various arguments for why governments should stick with CBA. There are various arguments uh, that have been advanced to defend cost-benefit analysis. Uh, and I'll try to show why the arguments fail. Uh, and then uh, I will leave time for your questions and uh, objections. Okay, so let's um, go through uh, the theory uh, of social welfare functions uh, for uh, uh, a bit. Uh, uh, this is a bit, uh, well, mathematical or formal. Um, there's a, you know, it is a formal framework. Uh, in the actual literature, there's a lot of formalism. Uh, I think the basic ideas can be communicated without a huge amount of formalism, uh, but there is uh, a little bit, uh, so apologies. So, um, the basic framework is this, and this is the framework in sort of its full generality. Um, there's a set of outcomes, right? Outcomes are sort of, you know, uh, um, philosophers would call them possible worlds, right? Or models of possible worlds. These are possible consequences for everyone in the population of interest, right? So this would describe what might happen, for example, to the income, the health, the longevity, the environmental conditions and so forth of everyone uh, in the population of uh, interest. Um, there's a set of actions, right? Actions uh, um, here we're interested in governmental policy choices. So I've denoted these with P, so policy P, P star, P double star, and so forth, and a fixed population of individuals, right? Now this um, framework can be generalized to allow for variable population. Uh, 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 but that poses further complications, and so I'm not going to talk about that uh, here. So what the approach does is to rank outcomes, right, these possible worlds, or at least sort of cognitively practical models of possible worlds, as a function of their corresponding well-being vectors, right? A vector is simply a list of well-being numbers, right? So um, there are two sort of critical components to the approach. 
right? One is uh, a well-being measure, this is W, that takes each outcome and converts it into a list of well-being numbers, right? And so this is, in a way, a dramatic sort of compression uh, and summary of the information. So instead of all the rich information about what happens to everyone in, in the population of N in a given outcome, we boil that down to a list of well-being numbers, right? So X is converted into W1X, W2X, up to WNX, right? So the well-being level of individual 1 and X, of individual 2 and X, and so forth, right? The same happens for Y. And then we have, so rule M, and I use M for moral, because I think of the social welfare function approach as kind of a moral decision procedure, right? We have some rule M for ranking these well-being vectors, right? So the framework says outcome X is at least as good as Y, this sort of squiggly here denotes at least as good as. So x is at least as good as y, if and only if the well-being vector corresponding to x, right, these n numbers, right, is, are ranked, uh, is ranked by uh, 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 rule m at least as good as uh, the well-being vector corresponding to outcome y, right? So this suffices to rank outcomes. Then, once we have this outcome ranking in hand, we need to rank actions, that is policies, uh, 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 and I will get to that uh, in a bit. I'm going to talk first about the outcome ranking. Um, so this is a, in effect, a kind of a consequentialist, right? It's consequentialist because we're thinking about uh, 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 our, our choices morally being sort of undergirded by a ranking of outcomes. Um, not only is it consequentialist, it's welfarist, right? These outcomes, right, are ranked in light of well-being. Right? So you can think of it, I think of it as a sort of a consequentialist well for a small decision procedure for large-scale decisions. I mean, in theory, you could use this for a day-to-day -day decision. It's difficult to implement. And so given the decision costs, right, it's most practical to think of this as a, as, as, as a procedure for large-scale uh, decisions. Okay. So one of the neat things is, um, you know, we can use the axiomatic method to narrow down possible rules here, right? There are lots of different rules for ranking these well-being vectors. Which one should we pick? Well, one way to think about that is through axioms, right? Axioms are conditions, right, uh, um, uh, that a rule uh, are supposed to satisfy, right? One, uh, now these are all well-being numbers. I'm going to get in a bit to how we measure well-being, but I'm going to start first by talking about the rule uh, uh, for ranking well-being vectors. Um, uh, so let's just assume that we have these uh, well-being uh, numbers. These represent uh, uh, well-being uh, levels and differences. Uh, so this is individual one. So in all these cases, we have four-person population, right? Uh, individual one's at level three, individual two at level four. Uh, uh, so these are uh, both intra take these as being both intrapersonally and interpersonally comparable. Right, so individual two uh, at level four is better off than individual one at level three. Uh, and indeed, they represent not just levels, but differences. Right? So we'll get to how one comes up with that. Um, but uh, so let's talk, talk first uh, uh, about uh, this uh, uh, rule M. Uh, and here are some plausible axioms. Now, again, how do we decide these? It's an ethical matter. Right? Uh, um, I view this as a way to sort of operationalize a certain type of moral view. And so we settle on these axioms by, you know, the standard method of moral reasoning, namely something like reflective equilibrium. Right? We, we can argue about it. But these are all sort of plausible axioms, uh, or at least worth considering. Pre-exteriority, 
right? Uh, um, uh, uh, in terms of well-being, right? If at least one person is better off and no one is worse off, that's a better vector, right? So in this case, uh, person four goes from 12 to 13. The other three are unaffected, and so greater superiority says this is better, right? So this means strictly better than. This means equally good as. So this is a better vector. Anonymity, which sort of crystallizes the ethical attitude of partiality, says if we simply rearrange the well-being numbers, right, we permute them, but we have the very same pattern, just the same pattern, just differing only in which particular person is at which well-being level, that's equally good. Right? So anonymity says this, we have the four levels, uh, 4, 7, 12, 60, just in different orders. Uh, anonymity says those are uh, equally good. Piku Dalton uh, is an equity axiom. Right? One, I think, is very plausible. Uh, uh, this says if we have a pure transfer of well-being, let's leave aside the case of an uh, impure or leaky transfer, but a pure transfer of well-being from someone who is better off to someone who is worse off, right, that shrinks the gap between them, then that's an improvement. Right? So in this case, we started here. Uh, this person is at level 10. This person is at level 4. And we transfer 2. And it's a pure transfer. Right? So the two units that this person loses right, are not lost. There's no leakage at all. Uh, uh, that is gained by the worst off person. So this person goes from 4 to 6. This person goes from 10 to 8. If one is utilitarian, the sums are the same. Right? But Fugu Dalton says, no, that's an improvement. Right? It's a pure gap-diminishing transfer from someone who is better off to someone who is worse off. Separability says basically uh, the well-being levels of unaffected people don't matter, right? So these two people, the second and the third individuals, are at level 100. And separability says uh, um, uh, the ranking should be the same if we change those levels. So instead of being at, at 100, uh, uh, the second person was at 7 in, two, in both vectors, and the third person was at 7 in both vectors. The ranking should be the same. Continuity says a small change does not affect the ranking, right? If uh, this is better than this, right, then that's going to be true for a sufficiently small uh, region around the first vector. So if we uh, increase uh, 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 um, uh, the uh, second individual's uh, well-being level here by a sufficiently small epsilon or decrease it, uh, uh, the resulting vector should remain better. Um, as we'll talk about, this is true both of prioritarianism, or at least continuous prioritarianism, uh, uh, and utilitarianism. It's actually not true of some uh, well-known social welfare functions, such as uh, the Lexamin uh, social welfare function. Uh, and then ratio scaling invariance says, basically, if we have a certain ordering of the vectors and we multiply them by a common positive constant, then the order should not change. All right, we can talk about all these. Uh, I think a compelling argument can be made for these two, and a strong argument can be made for these two. Uh, uh, good pragmatic arguments can be made for these two. And uh, uh, this, uh, I think, can be defended in terms of the theory of well-being, right? Uh, um, uh, if we multiply a well-being number by a positive constant, then we preserve intra- and interpersonal comparisons of levels, differences, and ratios. And it's hard to see what other well-being information uh, uh, would exist. Now, what's magic, what's sort of amazing about the um, uh, theory literature is that it shows that just by putting together a fairly small list of axioms, we could radically 
uh, narrow down the possible uh, rules for ranking well-being vectors. Right? So um, prioritarianism, right? Uh, a prioritarian social order function uh, satisfies uh, Pareto, uh, anonymity, Pagudalt, and separability. Uh, and a continuous prioritarian social welfare function satisfies these four plus continuity and takes this form. Now, before I get to this, let me just sort of show this. This is sort of the magic of the axioms. Um, let's assume the first two axioms of Pareto and anonymity, oops, sorry, I think are really hard to uh, argue with, or at least I'll take as given. Um, and so this is the space of all social welfare functions, all rules M that satisfy Pareto and anonymity, right? And if we then simply add Pugu Dalton and separability, that brings us to prioritarian social welfare functions. And if we add continuity, that brings us to these continuous prioritarian social welfare functions. So just by adding these three axioms, we end up with a quite specific sort of family of social welfare functions, namely uh, prioritarianism. Um, so the, again, the prioritarian, and more specifically the continuous prioritarian social welfare function, uh, um, uh, satisfies Pareto anonymity, Pagudalt and separability, uh, and continuity. And indeed, this is sort of the magic, any social welfare function that satisfies all these axioms can be represented in this form. So we characterize this form axiomatically. And so what we're doing here is instead of just summing up well-being numbers, we're summing up well-being numbers transformed by this transformation function. Right? Increasing in concave, it looks like this. Right? Um, so instead of just summing up well-being numbers, right? That's what apologies for toggling here. Right? So, so you know, utilitarianism, which of course goes back to Bentham, sums up well-being numbers. Right? One outcome at least as good as the second, if and only if the sum of the well-being numbers for the first is at least as large as the sum of well-being numbers for the second. Right? Um, um, uh, prioritarianism uh, sums up well-being numbers um, uh, plugged into this uh, concave transformation. And it's the concavity of this. It bends over, which means that this satisfies the, the equity option. Right? Recall that Pabu Dalton says, that if we transfer well-being from someone who is better off to someone who is worse off without losing any, then that's an ethical improvement. Now again, if we're utilitarian, that's not true. It's just a wash. If we're prioritarian, what happens? So here we have two individuals, one at a high well-being level, W sub H, one at a low well-being level, W sub L, and we reduce the well-being of the person up here uh, by delta W and increase the well-being of the person down here uh, by the same amount, because this is concave, the reduction in the G value, the transformed value of the better off person, is less than the increase in the G value of the worse off person. And so the effect on the sum of Gs is net positive. Right? That's just concavity. Right? Uh, uh, and um, uh, so this you know, is a way to sort of formally represent the Boudon. And indeed, Right? Uh, 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 if we you know, put together Pareto, uh, anonymity, separability, continuity, and Goudaldent, uh, the only way to, to do so is by summing these G values. Okay, so 
and, and again, to jump ahead a little bit, I think at the end of the day, the plausible, um, with apologies to Roger, uh, the plausible uh, uh, social welfare functions are either uh, uh, utilitarian or continuous prioritarian. At least those are the ones that I like uh, um, uh, uh, most. Uh, uh, again, we get here by uh, uh, adopting not just Craig anonymity, but the Goudal and separate continuity. Uh, utilitarianism, uh, by the way, satisfies Pareto anonymity, separate continuity, but not the Goudalton. So the Goudalton is the key difference between utilitarianism and uh, prioritarianism. Now, one thing you might say is, well, Adler, I mean, this is a pretty still kind of abstract idea, right? The reason I have here A as opposed to B is that this is a whole family of social welfare functions, right? Utilitarianism, at least once we sort of uh, fix the well-being measure, is a specific social welfare function, just add up the well-being numbers. Prioritarianism says, it's a whole family, it says, take any increasing concave transformation, right, plug in the well-being numbers and sum them up, that's prioritarianism. And so you might say, well, which one? There are an uncountable infinity of concave transformation functions, so which one do you like? In particular, if you're thinking about this as being the basis for policy analysis, you better tell us a way to pick it. Well, this is where this axiom of ratio or scaling and variance comes in. If we add, so again, putting all these together gets us to continuous prioritarianism. Adding this gets to a specific kind of uh, prioritarian transformation function, right? Characterized first by the now sadly deceased Anthony Atkinson, uh, known as the Atkinson social welfare function, right? Um, and what that does is uh, uses a power function. Right, so G is specifically uh, W to the power one minus gamma, and gamma is an inequality uh, aversion parameter. Right, so this represents a specific family or subfamily of prioritarian social warfare functions. Right, uh, and the way to argue for that again is sort of axiomatically. Right, if one insists on ratio rescaling invariance, right, then multiplying two vectors by a common constant doesn't change the order then the only continuous prioritarian social work function that satisfies that is the Atkinson one. So we end up all the way here, right, with a, you know, again, a quite specific, um, uh, 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 still a family uh, or subfamily, but uh, you know, a fairly specific subfamily of social work functions just by combining these axioms. Okay, so one more word about this. So we're still talking about the uh, um, a rule for ranking well-being vectors, and then I'll get to well-being measurement uh, and uncertainty, and then on to the application. Um, so uh, this is a uh, uh, inequality version or priority parameter, right? So any prioritarian social welfare function uh, gives some degree of priority to the work well. Right, but how much? How much? Right? If we imagine not a pure transfer, but a leaky transfer. So we reduce the well-being of a better off person by a certain amount and increase uh, the well-being of the worse off person by a little bit less than that. To what extent are we willing to tolerate that leakage? Right? That corresponds to sort of the degree of compatibility. The more sort of bent over this transformation function is, the more priority we're giving to the worse off. Right? Um, uh, and that's what this uh, Atkinson parameter captures. Right? So again, um, uh, the functional form of this is simply 
uh, summing well-being uh, 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 to the power one minus uh, gamma. Uh, now note that if gamma uh, is zero, then this is just utilitarianism, right? W to the one over one is just W. That's utilitarianism. The bigger gamma gets, the more the degree of priority for the worse off, right? And as gamma goes to infinity, so gamma can be anywhere between zero, slightly, you know, as close as possible to zero, but positive to infinity. As gamma goes to infinity, this approaches the less than min social welfare function that gets absolute priority for the worse off, right? So thinking about the level of gamma is a way to think, assume one, assuming that one likes prioritarianism, is a way to think about uh, the degree of uh, concavity. Uh, and we can do that through thought experiments. Right, so um, uh, again, by thinking about leaky transfers. So we imagine that poor is at well-being level W, rich is at well-being level uh, uh, KW, some uh, multiple of that. Uh, and we say, again, if we reduce rich's well-being by delta W and increase poor's by delta W, then that's gotta be a good thing, right? If uh, uh, um, uh, for any prioritarian social welfare function, what if we increase pores uh, by some fraction f, f is less than one, right? Uh, uh, and we can say, well, what's the minimum fraction, right? And if one is using this Atkinson social worker function, like an aversion of continuous prioritarianism, the minimum fraction is a function of just two things. The ratio between the better off person and the worse off person and the level of gamma, right? So note that, for example, Let's imagine the better off person is uh, um, uh, at uh, twice the level of the worse off person. So k is 2. So if gamma is 1, the minimum fraction is 1 half to the 1. If gamma is 2, the minimum fraction is 1 half to the 2, which is 1 fourth. If gamma is 3, the minimum fraction is 1 eighth, and so forth. So by thinking about your willingness to make these transfers, we can calibrate the degree of concavity of this uh, social welfare function. And indeed, there's a, you know, uh, 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 an empirical literature that does just this. Okay, so um, let me um, speed up the theory a little bit because I want to get to the practical application. Again, this is very, uh, uh, I mean, I think it's very powerful, but it's also quite abstract. Um, uh, so let me uh, um, uh, spend a little more time on this and then get to uh, application. Uh, 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 and then finally to the contrast between uh, cost-benefit and social welfare functions. So this shows, I mean, one feature of this social welfare function approach is, as I've already said, that the well-being numbers need to be interpersonally comparable. Right? They need to measure not just within-person comparisons at levels and differences, but also comparisons between people. And so here I can show that uh, using the utilitarian or prioritarian social welfare function, right? So imagine that we've got two individuals, Amy and Barry. Uh, these are three outcomes. And imagine that we have this initial assignment of well-being numbers. And then we say, well, gee, let's take Amy's numbers and divide those by 10. Now note that by dividing by 10, we preserve all of the intrapersonal information for both people, right? So we preserve information about uh, uh, intrapersonal level comparison for Amy. So with this original assignment of well-being numbers, Amy is uh, best off in Y, uh, uh, better off in Y than X and Z, 64, better than 49, better than 36. And that is preserved by the new numbers, right? right? 
just a, you know, a, a, a positive uh, individual specific constant. Now 6.4 bigger than 4.9, bigger than 3.6. Uh, this preserves interpersonally uh, differences as well. Right? So with the original numbers, the difference between 64 and 49 is bigger, uh, uh, that's 15, is bigger than the difference between 49 and 36, which is 13. And that's uh, true with the new numbers as well. Now 1.5 is bigger than uh, 1.3, um, and for ratios. But by uh, 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 multiplying only one of the individual's uh, 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 numbers uh, uh, by this constant, we have upset the interpersonal comparisons, right? So under this original assignment of welding numbers, right, Amy is better off than Barry, and now Amy looks worse off than Barry, assuming for differences. Now, the lesson here is that if we don't think that the well-being numbers you know, uh, 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 embody, express interpersonal comparisons, that is, we feel free to transform the numbers in a way that preserves all the interpersonal information, upsets the interpersonal information, that changes the randomness of the vectors. Right? So if we do this, this is our original assignment of well-being numbers. This is the new assignment that preserves intrapersonal information but changes interpersonal information. The utilitarian and prioritarian rankings will change, right? So if we just add up the well-being numbers, or in this case, add up the well-being numbers plugged into the square root function, the square root being, you know, uh, a kind of prioritarian function, with the original well-being numbers, right? The utilitarian ranking is that y is the best outcome, followed by x, followed by z. The prioritarian ranking says they're all equally good. If one now did the same thing with the new numbers, the ranking changes. <laughs> Right now, utilitarian says not y better than x better than z, but rather z better than x better than y. And prioritarianism, rather than saying they're all equally good, now says they're not equally good. So the lesson of this, and again, this has been you know sort of elaborated formally uh, in the social choice literature, is that for this approach to work, we need to have an interpersonally comparable uh, well-being uh, measure. How do you do that? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I've written a lot about this uh, here, standing on. Uh, I mean, there are lots of people whose shoulders I stand on in this work. Um, um, uh, you know, Atkinson, Parfit, Sen, uh, and in this case, John Harshani. Uh, 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 Harshani has a uh, theory about how to uh, derive interpersonally comparable well-being numbers based on VNM, that is Von and morgenstern utility functions, right? VNM functions, again, sorry for the uh, 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 jargon here. Uh, 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 these are functions uh, uh, that represent people's preferences, right? Uh, and Harsani shows, and I sort of developed this, that we can develop an interpersonally comparable well-being measure uh, that respects people's preferences, right, when we're comparing bundles of attributes among people with the same preferences and also makes interpersonal comparisons. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Uh, I'll just say that uh, in the simple case where everyone has the same preferences, that is people with the same ranking of different bundles of attributes, by attributes I mean things, again, like income, health, longevity, and so forth, right, this approach reduces to simply using the uh, common utility function as the well-being measure. All right, that is uh, uh, abbreviated. Um, I'm happy to talk more about that in q and I'm happy to uh, send sites. Uh, but in any event, uh, 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 the critical point here is that we need to make uh, interpersonal comparisons. And if you like a preference view of well-being, 
uh, uh, and you like our Thionis approach, we can use these utility functions that represent preferences as a way to uh, uh, construct the well-being numbers. All right, one other uh, a theory point here, which is this whole question of uncertainty. Right, so to this point, I've talked about how to use this apparatus to write outcomes, but of course, policies, uh, you know, decision makers are not omniscient. Decision makers will not know necessarily that a given policy choice, you know, will lead to a particular outcome for sure. Right, more typically, the decision maker will simply see a policy choice as a probability distribution across outcomes, right? She'll say to herself, if I pick this policy, this outcome will arise with this probability, this outcome will arise with that probability, and so forth. Right? So we can think of status quo or policy, again, as being probability distributions across outcomes. Um, uh, uh, so in all these examples, uh, um, uh, I'm assuming that the probabilities are 0.5 and 0.5. Right, so uh, we got the status quo. Uh, uh, that might lead to outcome X with probability a half. It might lead to outcome Y with probability a half. Right, if X occurs, now again, these are well-being numbers. Um, uh, uh, there are two individuals, Jim and June. So Jim gets four and June gets zero. If Y occurs, uh, Jim gets nine uh, and June gets four. Right, uh, with the policy uh, instead, Two other outcomes, Z and double Z, uh, these are the well-being numbers. Okay, uh, um, uh, 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 if we're uh, uh, utilitarians, uh, the standard approach is simply to sum individuals' expected well-beings, right? So we're gonna sum these numbers, and lo and behold, uh, 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 the value of this uh, policy is 6.5 plus two. So 6.5 is Jim's expected well-being. Right, half chance of four, half chance of nine, expected well-being is 6.5, June's uh, expected well-being is two. If we're utilitarians, the straightforward approach is just to sum those, right? And so we get uh, uh, 8.5 bigger than seven. If we're prioritarians, there are two different, at least, but two, two sort of salient approaches, so-called uh, ex-anti-prioritarianism and so-called ex-post-prioritarianism. I talk about this, one, because it's a really important issue. There's a big debate in theoretical literature but also in terms of practical application, the approach that uh, I think is best is not just prioritarian, but a so-called ex-post-prioritarian. That's the approach I'm gonna use uh, in the case uh, study. So again, let's imagine the square root uh, is you know, uh, a very simple prioritarian uh, social welfare function. We've got this prioritarian social welfare function. We now wanna figure out how do we apply it to rank these policies, right? Both understood as probability distributions across well-being vectors. Well, there are two possibilities, right? Ex post prioritarianism says we take the expected value of the prioritarian social work function. We take the expected value of the sum of transformed well-being. So in each possible state, we say what is the sum of individual transformed well-being? And then we take the expectation of that, right? So ex post says, uh, well, Let's take the status quo, right? Uh, if X occurs, uh, then the sum of transformed well-being is two. The square root of four plus the square root of zero is two. If Y occurs, uh, uh, the uh, sum of transformed well-being is five. Square root of three plus the square root of two. Okay, and then we just assign the policy the expected value. The expected value of the sum of transformed well-being 
that's 3.5. Here, on the other hand, uh, um, uh, uh, the sum of square root of 3.5 and square root of 3.5 uh, is 3.74, 3.74. The expected value of that is 3.74. So if we take the expected value of the self-transformed world being, we say this is a better policy. It's got a bigger score. But there's another way to proceed, right? So-called ex-ante prioritization. Right? Um, uh, um, now we treat the individual's expected well-being numbers as themselves sort of inputs. Right? And so we take this transformation function and apply it to the individual expected well-being. And so now what we say is we're going to assign a policy number equaling the sum of transformed expected well-being. Right? So logical things here. But the expected sum of transformed well-being is not the same thing as the sum of transformed expected well-being. Right? The ex-ante approach says we're going to sum transformed expected well-being. What that means is we take the square root of 6.5 and the square root of a 2. That's 3.96. Here, the square root of 3.5, the square root of 3.5, that's 3.74. And so lo and behold, we see the two approaches diverge. Ex-post prioritarianism, now again, the terms ex-post and ex-ante are misleading because neither is really ex-post. Neither, neither is retrospective. Both are prospective ways to rank policy choices understood as probability distributions across outcomes. They just differ in how they do that, right? The expected sum uh, of transformed well-being, so-called ex post, says this is a better uh, policy than this. Ex ante says this is better than this, right? So we've got a real th theoretical choice here. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on that. Again, I've written about a lot about this. Uh, there, are, there are axioms, just as we can use axioms to think about uh, 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 rules for ranking outcomes, so we can use axioms for thinking about applying a social work function under uncertainty. Um, uh, um, I think the ex post approach uh, is the uh, better one. Okay, so um, with apologies for going a little long on the theory, now let's get to application. Because again, my work on this has really proceeded on two tracks. One is to develop the theory to try to sort of pull together the philosophy and the uh, welfare economics. Um, but the second is to really, um, uh, uh, you know, work through uh, these ideas as the basis for policy choice. And I should say, you know, I'm a, I'm a law professor. I get interested in cost-benefit analysis because I teach administrative law. And so I get interested in how cost-benefit is used uh, uh, in the U.S. government. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very interested in uh, actually uh, applying this stuff. Okay, so what I did, uh, this is... Um, I got a paper on the web that, you know, lays this out. Um, I built a uh, simulation model based on the actual U.S. survival curve. Survival curve is this concept in demography. It says, basically, uh, for each year of life, right, what's your probability of surviving that year? Right, and we can sort of put together the survival curve based on population data. We can say in the U.S., in a given year, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, what number of newborns make it to year one, what percentage of uh, uh, individuals year one make it to year two, and so forth. And so we can use that to look at uh, 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 annual probabilities of survival. Uh, put that all together, that yields a survival curve. So I built this model based on the actual U.S. survival curve and the actual income distribution. Um, and what I did is imagine uh, 25 cohorts of individuals, right? Um, so uh, uh, now this is not the real population, although the 
Uh, the inputs here are based on, as I said, the U.S. income distribution and, and, and survival curve. I imagine this hypothetical population of um, uh, 25 uh, groups of individuals. I'm imagining the groups of equal uh, numbers of people in them. Um, so there are uh, five uh, different uh, 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 age groups, age 20, 30, 40, 50, and 60, uh, and five different uh, uh, income amounts corresponding to different percentiles of the actual US uh, income distribution. Um, and so what I uh, then imagine is um, I say, OK, in the status quo, each person in uh, this cohort uh, faces a certain survival curve going forward. That is a certain probability of surviving each uh, of the succeeding uh, possible years of their life and a certain income amount. That's the status quo, again, taken from actual data. Uh, and I imagine a policy that does the following. I imagine, uh, and this is be quite typical for a risk regulation, a risk reduction policy like a pollution policy, um, the a policy reduces the risk of dying in the next year for each uh, one, everyone in, in each of the 25 cohorts by 100,000. So a probability of dying in the next year goes down by the small amount. And then I ask, okay, well, that's a good thing. Right, that's a good thing. Uh, and one way to think about that is um, uh, that in the status quo, right, given the income and given the survival curve, we can uh, uh, imagine each person in a given uh, cohort facing a probability distribution over life histories. Right, uh, given you know, uh, her survival probabilities and income, uh, she's got various chances of living uh, 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 various longevities and, and realizing uh, certain income amounts, right? Um, I use a social welfare function uh, 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 to uh, value those. And more specifically, I use a, um, a well-being uh, indicator uh, uh, based on a log utility function. So uh, for each possible life history, right, uh, I assign that a well-being as a function of the income in every year plus longevity using uh, a logarithmic uh, utility function. So I'm imagining common preferences here. Uh, and so in the baseline, a given uh, individual in a given cohort faces a certain distribution across uh, lives, uh, uh, life lengths she's, she might uh, lead. Uh, and then the, uh, what the policy does is to improve that. Right? So by, by reducing her risk of dying in the next year, right, I increase her chance of living longer. Right? Uh, I, um, uh, so if she's 50, I reduce the chance that she's going to die at 50, increase her chance uh, instead of living to 51, 52, 52, 3, and so forth. Right? So this, this shift in current survival probability induces a change in her survival curve, which is a good thing. And then I say, well, how much are we as society going to pay for that? Right? Obviously, if we can do that for free, we'll do it. Right? Everyone's life is made better. Right, uh, 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 um, uh, uh, but what's the maximum amount of income uh, we're willing to uh, pay socially to produce this uh, increase in longevity? And it's a very typical question uh, in um, um, uh, uh, government policy making, in, in, in risk uh, 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 regulation, pollution, uh, uh, consumer product risk, uh, workplace risk, and so forth. Right? How much is society willing to pay for risk reduction? And so what I say is, well, 
Now I'm going to imagine uh, uh, increasing each of the 25 cohorts uh, um, uh, probability surviving for a year. But also now I'm going to imagine reducing the income of folks in each of the 25 cohorts by a certain amount. Right? And if I reduce that income by just a little amount, right, obviously that's still an, an improvement. If I reduce the income by a large amount at a certain point, right, this becomes a bad policy. And so now I can ask, what's the break even? Right? What is the maximum amount society is willing to pay for this uniform one in 100,000 risk reduction, right, for uh, the folks in these uh, cohorts? Um, and, and this is the thing, I estimate that or I calculate that using cost-benefit analysis, right, the sum of monetary equivalents, using the utilitarian social worker function, and using EPP, which is prioritarianism, this exposed prioritarianism, with gamma equals two. So kind of a moderately high degree of uh, priority for the worst off. Remember, gamma is the uh, priority parameter for this active and social welfare function, right? So what is, again, I'm imagining a uniform one in 100,000 risk reduction, right? What is the maximum that society should pay for that as calculated by these different policy approaches, right? Cost-benefit analysis, utilitarianism, uh, prioritarianism. So a couple of things, you know, uh, should leak out from this. Um, just from these numbers, and I'm going to drill down the numbers uh, a bit more uh, in a second, is these are practical approaches, right? You can calculate a number. So let me say, by the way, this question is, this is bread and butter for cost-benefit analysis. This is the kind of question that cost-benefit analysis is, is used to answer all the time, right? Every day, there are hundreds of bureaucrats in the U.S. government answering these kinds of questions using cost-benefit analysis. Right, deciding whether, for example, an EPA regulation that uh, reduces risks, ripping hazard costs, is worth it or not. This is exactly what this is doing. And what I've shown here is one can, you know, do the same exercise, right, coming up with a specific break-even using a utilitarian or prioritarian, or for that matter, one could do, although I haven't done here, a social welfare function. That's point number one. So this stuff can actually be operationalized, right? The second point is. Yeah, duh. The numbers are different. The numbers are different. It matters. Right? These are not the same numbers. And in particular, it's often assumed that cost-benefit analysis is just utilitarianism. But we can see right away that's not true. Right? And again, we'll drill down in a second as to why these numbers differ. But the utilitarian break-even here is 48. Now, this line, by the way, so, so I imagine, uh, again, that, the, that the, 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 the risk reduction is uniform, that everyone uh, uh, in the 25 cohorts gets a 1 in 100,000 risk reduction. But what I'm varying here is assumptions about cost incidence. So how are the costs formed? Right, so one possibility is what I'm calling here uniform cost incidence, which is to say that each person in the 25 cohorts, right, incurs the very same absolute cost. Um, so if that's the assumption, we can calculate the break-even using cost-benefit analysis, utilitarianism, Prioritarianism, the numbers are different. Utilitarianism actually is willing to incur uh, 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 less cost if uh, uh, born uh, uniformly than cost-benefit. And prioritarianism is actually in the middle. Now I imagine, uh, I'm holding constant the incidence of the risk reductions. I'm imagining uh, patterns of incidence of the cost that are more and more progressive, right? So instead of having a certain form of cost born 
by each of the 25 cohorts, you know, in the same absolute amount, I'm imagining proportional into this. So we have a certain absolute cost, right? But now the amount that each person pays is not the same amount, but rather the same fraction of their income is proportional, right? For each person to say pays 1% or 2% or 3% uh, uh, and so forth of her income, uh, uh, these will then be different amounts for the different income percentiles because these folks have less income, and so a given percentage is a less, a smaller absolute amount than for a larger. Uh, uh. Lo and behold, the numbers change, and we'll drill down on this in a second. Cost-benefit analysis is insensitive to distribution of income. So for cost-benefit analysis, the break-even is the same regardless of whether it's born in a uniform way or proportional way, or this is even more progressive. Now imagining that the richest uh, um, uh, uh, fifth of the population, right, the 90th income percentile in the actual US uh, distribution, that all the costs are borne by those folks, right? Cost-benefit is insensitive to distribution. By contrast, utilitarianism is willing to pay more and more as the costs are borne uh, by richer and richer individuals, and prioritarianism even more so. So, calculable, these two just like cost-benefit, and it matters. Right? It matters for a given assumption about incidence, and it certainly matters as we change assumptions about uh, incidence. All right, so, so what's, what's going on here? Um, uh, and I want to get to uh, why we might uh, uh, like cost-benefit, but again, I'm trying to illustrate here, um, uh, having talked in, you know, in a theory way about social work functions, uh, 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 why it makes a, a difference. So let's go back to... Um, you know, the, the basic structure of these approaches, right? So cost-benefit analysis, as I said, evaluates policies by summing individuals' monetary equivalents, right? The social value of a policy impact on an individual, whether it's, you know, uh, 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 a risk reduction for her, a change in her income, or what have you, is its effect on her monetary equivalent. So monetary equivalent is, in effect, the currency for cost-benefit. Right? Cost-benefit evaluates uh, 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 policy effects uh, by summing individuals' monetary equivalents. Utilitarianism, again, under uncertainty, right? utilitarianism, the straightforward approach, is simply to sum individuals' expected well-being. Right? And so the social value of a policy impact on an individual, again, whether it's a risk reduction or an income change, in this case, those are the two effects I'm considering, a risk reduction uh, as balanced with an income reduction. The social value of a policy impact on an individual is its effect on her expected well-being. So the currency for utilitarianism is not the monetary equivalent, but rather expected well-being. We're summing those to evaluate policies. And finally, ex post prioritarianism EPP, right, evaluates policies by the expected sum of transformed well-being, or equivalently the sum of individuals' expected transformed well-being. And so the, the currency here is not the monetary equivalent. That's not how these uh, policy effects are measured, nor is it expected well-being. It's expected transformed well-being. So what's going on here is that we have one of the same policy, risk reduction, income reduction, but evaluated by these different approaches using different currencies, monetary equivalents, expected well-being, expected transformed well-being. And now, we can look at the comparative social value of risk reduction and income change for the different cohorts 
comparative social value as measured by cost-benefit analysis, utilitarianism and prioritarianism, according to their respective currencies. So what's driving these numbers is that the comparative social value, these patterns of comparative social value between the cohorts is different for cost-benefit as compared to utilitarianism, as compared to prioritarianism. And so the, 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 the ultimate result, the, you know, the, the, the break-even amounts, end up being uh, different. Now these, I mean, I actually think these are, uh, and again, this is a paper on the web. Uh, it's a long paper, but I think these are the most important tables in the paper. It takes a little work to understand them. So, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the, the meaning may not leap out. But what I've done here is to say, let's imagine that we reduce the risk. So this is the social value of risk reduction as measured by cost-benefit analysis, utilitarianism, prioritarianism. And I imagine we reduce the risk of someone of a 60-year-old in the lowest income cohort by 100,000. And I give that a value of one, right? Um, and then I say for other individuals, for individuals in the 24 other cohorts, what is the value of the very same risk reduction for someone in that cohort as a multiple of one. So in the case of cost-benefit, for example, what this means is that if this person's monetary equivalent is a certain amount, if now we reduce the risk of someone in this cohort, her monetary equivalent is going to be 1.4 times that. If we reduce uh, the risk of someone in this cohort by 100,000, her monetary equivalent will be 24.5 times that. So now we're calculating here comparative social values anchored on one, meaning the social value is measured by cost-benefit analysis of a 100,000 risk reduction for a 60-year-old in this uh, um, cohort. And we can do the same exercise for the different approaches. This is sort of the, the, the insight here, which is we can do the same thing for utilitarianism. We can say, now, using the metric of social value, uh, 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 which for utilitarianism is not monetary equivalence, but expected uh, well-being, what are the comparative valuations? So now we say, if we reduce uh, the risk of someone in this cohort by 100,000, uh, let's say her change in expected well-being is one. And if it, instead we were to reduce uh, uh, the risk of someone in this cohort uh, uh, by 100,000, the change in her expected well-being would be 1.8 times that. So now we're looking at comparative social value of risk redu reduction among the 25 cohorts but using the utilitarian metric, expected well-being, as opposed to the cost-benefit metric, which is monetary equivalence, and finally with, with prioritarianism, using the um, uh, uh, prioritarian metric, which is expected transformed well-being. These patterns are very different, right? And by looking at, by staring at this a little bit, you can really see, I think, the flaw of cost-benefit. So let's start with utilitarianism, right? In some sense, let's go back to Bentham, as it were. Right, this is how Bentham, or a Benthamite, would think about the value of risk reduction. Right, so two things to note. One is that these numbers increase as we go up the column, right? So the social value, so holding constant income, the social value of risk reduction uh, for um, uh, a 60-year-old as opposed to a 20-year-old is, is greater for the 20-year-old. Why is that? Well, by you know, preventing someone uh, age 20 from dying in the next year, you're saving more life years. 
right? The gain in life expectancy is bigger if you save a 20 year old as opposed to saving a 60 year old, right? And so there's a bigger increase in expected well being. The other thing we see with utilitarianism is that utilitarianism has a bias for the rich, right? Holding constant the age. Now we imagine saving a 60 year old with a low income, with a higher income, with a higher income, with a higher income, and so forth, right? These numbers increase. Why is that? Well, we're saving the same number of life years, but the higher the income, these are life years lived at a higher income level. And if you think income is good for well-being, there's a bigger benefit to saving a life year at a higher income level as compared to death. Right? So this is not pleasant, but you don't hear anything that's a bias towards the rich. So what's really striking is how is, is, is to compare this pattern, so bias towards the young, bias towards the rich, utilitarianism, first of all with cost benefit. Same bias towards the run. What is dramatic here is that cost-benefit is much more biased towards the rich, right? So instead of, take a 60-year-old going from 1 to 2.3, we go from 1 to 18.4. Why is that? Well, because uh, cost-benefit translates, in effect, translates a risk change into a change in expected utility, but then translates that into a monetary equivalent. And it does that latter translation, right, by dividing by the marginal utility of money, right? So for a given change in well-being, rich people have a bigger monetary equivalent because expected utility, marginal utility is lower, right? So we have this notion of diminishing marginal utility, but what that means is that for the same uh, 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 risk change, right, uh, uh, cost-benefit values are skewed up relative to utilitarian values, right? So again, instead of in each row, so here we go from 2.8 to 5.7 here, and 2.8 uh, to 44.6, a much bigger bias towards the rich. Prioritarianism, again, compared to utilitarianism, prioritarianism reverses the bias, the utilitarian bias to the rich. So although saving uh, a richer person does more good, if we're prioritarian, we say on the one hand, we're, we're producing more good, but we're doing that good to someone who's better off. And so there are two effects. We want to do good, we want to be priorities the worse off, uh, and so the prioritarian approach actually has a bigger social value for risk reductions for the poor, right? So one uh, then for the rich, right? These values go down. The other thing is prioritarianism. Now let me say, so here we're implementing prioritarianism in, in a lifetime approach. So in effect, we're taking uh, the sum of uh, the expected sum of individuals' lifetime well-being, and in that framework, right, uh, there's a sense in which the young are poor, right? The young have lived fewer life years. And so, therefore, not only uh, 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 are we saving more years by saving young people, which is already picked up in utilitarianism, uh, uh, but that accrual occurs to people who, from prior care perspective, are worse off, worse off in lifetime terms, and so the relative valuation uh, is even bigger. Um, so again, starting with utilitarianism, cost-benefit enhances the bias towards the rich, prioritarianism, uh, uh, at least with this uh, degree of priority um, uh, reverses it. On the income side, we can do the same thing. We can do the social value of uh, income uh, changes for the cohorts. If it's cost-benefit, these numbers are the same, right? Because an income change for a given individual is just measured as a monetary equivalent. So let's imagine that I increase someone's uh, income by a dollar. What is, or a pound, right? What is her willingness to pay for uh, 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 an increase in income by a pound. Well, it's just a pound. It's just a pound regardless of her income, right? So the monetary equivalent for an income change is constant. 
This is why cost-benefit is insensitive to the pattern of distribution. Right? This is why shifting the incidence of cost makes no difference for cost-benefit. By contrast, utilitarianism, um, again, we're looking at the comparative social value as measured in terms of monetary equivalence, expected well-being, expected transformed well-being with the different approaches. Utilitarianism, here we, here we see this notion of diminishing market utility. Right? Increasing the income of someone, uh, uh, a 60-year-old person, low income, uh, um, uh, has a social value of, of 0.12. That is, her monetary equivalent for that is uh, 0.12. We've anchored to her monetary equivalent for 100,000 risk reduction. This goes down now, right? Because a dollar or a pound uh, uh, in the hands of a richer person has less marginal utility than the hands of uh, a poorer person, so the social valuations go down here. Right, so there are two differences. Again, you know, it's tempting to think that cost-benefit and utilitarianism are the same. Um, actually, there are two profound ways in which they're different, let alone uh, 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 to mention the difference between cost-benefit and prioritarianism. One is the enhanced bias towards the rich of cost-benefit, uh, and the other is the insensitivity to uh, distribution. Okay, so let me, um, and I'm going to be quick here because I want to take questions, uh, uh, and this is less uh, quantitative, so I can, you know, uh, this will, I hopefully will segue into the questions pretty well. Um, is cost-benefit defensible? Right? Cost-benefit is everywhere. Social welfare functions, this is simply a gleam, you know, uh, uh, in the eyes of academics. It's not actually used in government. Uh, is cost-benefit actually uh, defensible? The social welfare function framework uh, is a decision framework that rigorously implements welfareism, welfare consequentialism, right? So it's certainly true that non-welfare considerations, for example, deontological constraints, are extrinsic to the framework, right? If you think that morality is a matter not just of uh, welfare consequentialist considerations, but uh, uh, non-welfare considerations, then social welfare function framework is simply one input into the decision. <laughs> Cost-benefit analysis neither rigorously implements welfareism, nor does it take account of non-welfare considerations. So why on earth should we think that governments and academics should stick with it as opposed to moving to social welfare functions? Right? So there are a bunch of different things that one might say. I think all these arguments fail. Um, one is that social welfare functions require personal comparisons, as I've shown. Right? Cost-benefit analysis actually uh, does not. Right? Cost-benefit simply says for each person and all the different possible policies, what is her monetary equivalent? So to know that, all we need to know is her preferences. We do not need to make interpersonal comparisons, right? Um, so to which I say, so what? Yes, we need to make interpersonal comparisons. It's very plausible, uh, 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 you know, or it's a plausible part uh, of an attractive sort of welfareist view that we make to make such comparisons. How to make such comparisons is a, is a normative matter, uh, but that's not surprising, right? Choosing cost-benefit analysis is also kind of a normative choice. And so in specifying a social welfare function, we're going to have to sort of decide what our theory of well-being is going to be. We're going to have to sort of make interpersonal comparisons, but it's not surprising that we'd have to do that uh, uh, in um, uh, uh, choosing uh, a, uh, a normative decision procedure. Uh, this segues to the second point, which is that choosing a social welfare function and well-being measure requires normative judgment. 
Now, if we actually imagine that you know, uh, governments are going to use social welfare functions, then the, you know, the, 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 the requisite normative judgments will have to be made in a legally and democratically uh, legitimate manner. What that is will depend upon the actual laws in place and democratic theory. So in particular, you know, take the US, which I know best, cost-benefit analysis has been put in place by an executive order. It is not legally, legally legitimate, or for that matter, I think democratically legitimate, for agency officials to simply abandon it and move to social welfare functions unless there's a new executive order. Right? So I'm not suggesting that you know, agencies should just give up cost-benefit analysis absent a change in the executive order. On the other hand, were the executive order to change, right? were the president, right, uh, uh, you know, uh, this important elected official, to make the judgment that he or she likes the social welfare function, Trump's not going to do it, but maybe Warren will, who knows? Uh, um, uh, that would be, I think, perfectly legally and democratically le uh, legitimate. Everyone benefits from cost-benefit in the long run. No. I mean, everyone benefits from cost-benefit in the long run relative to sort of doing nothing. But it's certainly not true that everyone benefits from cost-benefit in the long run relative to alternative decision procedures. So it's not true, for example, that everyone benefits from cost-benefit in the long run relative to prioritarianism. The worse off would be better off under prioritarianism as compared to cost-benefit. One might think that cost-benefit is just a, a social welfare function. If one thinks that monetary equivalence just measure well-being, that this is just the right measure of well-being, um, then cost-benefit is a weird kind of social welfare function. It's not plausible, however, to think that monetary equivalents measure well-being because uh, uh, these are not sensitive to the diminishing marginal utility of uh, money. Um, uh, more than 10 years ago, I wrote a book which said that we should think of cost-benefit analysis as kind of a rough proxy for a social welfare function. But now I think, well, we don't need a rough proxy. We can actually do it directly, right? Why use a rough proxy when we have the apparatus to actually do it directly? Uh, and the final argument um, uh, says that it's better to uh, 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 focus social welfare functions on the tax system and use cost-benefit analysis for non-tax policies. We can talk about that in the Q&A. This is probably the best defensive cost-benefit, uh, but for various reasons, I think uh, that's also overstated. Uh, and with apologies, I'm happy to take your uh, questions.